As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the UK Weekly True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Miranda Shermans wrote a great five-star review in our Facebook page this week. Thanks, Miranda. But you also mentioned that ideally you'd like longer episodes than normal. So today we have an extended episode just for you. I hope you enjoy. Before we start, I'd also like to thank two people who have supported us on Patreon this week. Rebecca Manners and Mary Virginia Avery. Thank you both ever so much for your support. It really means a lot. I'm just finishing the first behind the scenes video and the next patron only bonus episode will be ready shortly too. So I hope you enjoy this. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, please do head to our page at patreon.com forward slash UK true crime. Today we again head to Northern Ireland in March 1988. So what else was going on at the world at this time? Mike Tyson knocked out Tony Tubbs in two rounds for the heavyweight boxing title of the world. In the 14th People's Choice Awards, Michael Douglas and Glenn Close won the award for motion picture, and for TV it was Sybil Shepherd and hmm, Bill Cosby. So moving on rapidly, Kylie Minogue was topping the UK charts, would be so lucky, and in the US the late great George Michael was number one with Father Figure. Central to today's story are the actions of the Provisional Irish Republican Army, or the IRA, which is now officially inactive, although there are some who would not agree with this. As we covered in Podcast 15, A Man in a Belfast Bar, the IRA was a paramilitary organisation which aimed to establish a united Ireland and end the British administration of Northern Ireland through the use of force. During its active campaign, The IRA killed members of the armed forces, the police, judiciary and the prison service, including off-duty and retired members, and they bombed businesses and military targets in both Northern Ireland and England, with the aim of making Northern Ireland ungovernable. For me personally, growing up in London in a non-religious family, and unaware of the complex details of the political situation in Ireland, the IRA was a scary terrorist organisation whose actions killed innocent people. The president, Jerry Adams, was widely hated and his voice was actually only read by an actor on the mainstream news on TV. At the same time, people of my age growing up in particularly Catholic parts of Northern Ireland and other parts of the world too, held similar views to mine about the IRA about the actions of the British government. In addition, British soldiers were on their streets, influencing their movements on a daily basis. The situation was then and still is today widely complex. The reality that matters to me 
is that so many people, a large number, completely innocent and caught up in the crossfire, gave their lives to this battle. On both sides, the anger still runs very, very deep. This was perhaps best illustrated by the press confusion around the recent death of former IRA commander and Sinn Féin politician Martin McGuinness, who was seen as a genuine hero by some, whereas others could never forgive someone directly responsible for ordering so many horrendous crimes. The difficulty when examining any actions involving the IRA is there's a constant disagreement on who did and said what and on the motivations behind certain actions. People who've studied Northern Ireland politics for years struggle to understand this situation. So as much as possible, I've attempted to avoid the politics and stick to the human issues underlying the actions. As always with this podcast, I hope you'll agree, this is what we really try and get to the nub of, the widespread human impacts of crime. In late 1987, the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland are at their height. That year, eight IRA members had been killed, the IRA's greatest loss during a single incident, during an IRA attack on a police station in Logol. The Irish police had received inside information on their plans to attack a police station and the SAS were waiting. Are you old enough to recall the 1980 Iranian embassy siege in London? This is where the Special Air Service, or SAS, a regiment of the British Army, first came to the fore among the general public worldwide. The rescue of all but one of the hostages was televised to an amazed nation and this crack team of special forces are now deployed to trouble spots all over the world. On this occasion in 1987, the SAS lay in wait for the IRA attack on the police and when it occurred, they burst into action foiling the attack and killing the eight IRA men, along with one innocent passerby who was in the wrong place at very much the wrong time. Later in 1987, the IRA detonated a bomb during a Remembrance Day service at Enniskillen, Northern Ireland, killing 11 people. The device went off without warning at 10.45am at the town cenotaph, where people had gathered to pay their respects to the war dead. The dead included three married couples, a retired policeman and a nurse. In the aftermath of the bombing, a tone of forgiveness was set by Gordon Wilson, whose daughter Marie was killed, and he himself was injured in the attack. Among other words of wisdom which endeared him to lovers of peace the world over, Gordon said... I bear no ill will. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. She was a great wee lassie. This attack caused such widespread horror and disgust that the IRA lost support worldwide after the bombing. And on Remembrance Day 1997, the leader of the IRA's political wing, Sinn Féin, Gerry Adams, formally apologised for the bombing. It was in this context that in late 1987, an IRA informant passed information to the British authorities that the IRA were planning an attack in the British territory of Gibraltar. Specifically, they were planning to detonate a bomb at the changing of the guard ceremony outside the governor's residence. When Sean Savage, Daniel McCann and Mariette Farrell, known IRA members, travelled to Spain in preparation for the attack, they were tracked at the request of the British government. The terrorists were according to journalist Brendan O'Brien, three of the IRA's most senior activists. Savage was an explosive expert, and McCann was a high-ranking intelligence operative. 
According to the Irish Police Force, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or RUC, in 1987, Sean Savage and Daniel McCann had already murdered two special branch officers in the docks area of Belfast. Savage was also the leader of the IRA unit that in December 1987 had placed a booby trap bomb underneath the car of a senior member of another paramilitary organisation which was set up to counter the IRA, the Ulster Defence Organisation, or UDA. John McMichael was the UDA's deputy commander and leader in South Belfast. He was conscious after the blast, but in a terrible way, suffering awful injuries, and he died on his way to hospital. The third member of the gang, Mariad Farrell, is the person about whom most has been written. She was born in Belfast on the 3rd of August 1957, the second youngest of six children and the only girl. Hers was a middle-class family with no link to militant Irish republicanism. She was 12 when the British Army arrived on the streets of Belfast in 1969. She found schoolwork easy, but she left after taking her O-levels to work in an insurance broker's office. Politics was an important issue in her household, and she listened to her grandfather's stories, but it was her experiences on the ground in Belfast that politicised her. She said, It was really more the events of those years growing up in the falls, when we had to pass through the Brits during the curfews. You could only get out for a certain number of hours. We were all victims of the British occupation, really. You just accepted that you would be involved to defend your country. Despite her interest in the struggle against the British government, it wasn't until she met an IRA volunteer named Bobby Storey that she decided to join the IRA. In 1976, she was sentenced to 14 years in prison for membership of the IRA and explosive offences, after she and two accomplices placed a bomb in a hotel frequented by British and Protestants. She had shouted a warning to people in the hotel once the bomb had been placed, and no one was injured in this attack. When in prison, she really came into her own. She played a role in a no-wash protest, and she also went on hunger strike, with her strong character making her a natural leader of women in the prison. She was released four years early in October 1986 and her time in prison had only deepened her views that the only solution for Ireland was to be rid of the British forever and she returned to IRA life. On the 6th of March 1988, in Gibraltar, Sean Savage was seen parking a white Renault in the car park used as the assembly area for the parade. Daniel McCann and Mariette Farrell were seen crossing the border from Spain shortly afterwards. The SAS were waiting for them. After a military bomb disposal officer reported that Savage's car should be treated as a suspected bomb, the police handed over control of the operation to the SAS. As soldiers were moving into position to intercept the trio, Savage split from McCann and Farrell and began running south. Two soldiers pursued Savage, while two approached McCann and Farrell. Farrell was hit by five bullets, McCann by four, Savage by up to 18. All three were killed. The three were subsequently found to be unarmed and Savage's car was found to contain no explosives. Let me repeat those facts again. The three members of the IRA, killed by the SAS, were unarmed, did not try to resist arrest, did not have the means to explode a bomb and they had not placed a bomb in Gibraltar. They were not, at the time they were shot, either a threat to the men who killed them or to anyone else. 
In the immediate aftermath of the Gibraltar shootings, Margaret Thatcher's government and its security chiefs issued a deliberate smokescreen of lies to try to cover up what had happened. The British faith faithfully and uncritically regurgitated these lies as fact. News bulletins and front page articles all told the same story. The three victims, Sean Savage, Dan McCann and Marriott Farrell, were killed by Gibraltar police after they planted a massive bomb. The three were armed, they ignored warnings, shots were exchanged, ending in all three being shot dead. The army, so the story went, then defused the bomb. The truth was very different. The British had tracked every move of these three volunteers as they crossed from Spain into Gibraltar. There was no bomb, there was no gun battle, the three were unarmed. It was not the Gibraltar police who did the shooting, but the SAS. The inquest into the deaths began in September 1988. It heard from British and Gibraltar authorities that the IRA team had been tracked to Malaga Airport in Spain, where they were lost by the Spanish police, and the three did not re-emerge until Savage was sighted parking his car in Gibraltar. The soldiers each testified that they'd opened fire in the belief that the suspected bombers were reaching for weapons or a remote detonator. On the 30th of September, the inquest jury returned a verdict of lawful killing. This was very controversial, and dissatisfied, the families of the murdered men took the case to the European Court of Human Rights. Delivering its judgment in 1995, the court found that the operation had been in violation of Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights, as the authorities' failure to arrest the suspects at the border, combined with the information given to the soldiers, rendered the use of lethal force almost inevitable. This backs up what many believed at the time, that the British government was operating a shoot-to-kill policy. When the bodies were searched, a set of car keys was found on Farrell. Spanish and British authorities conducted inquiries to trace the vehicle, which, two days after the shootings, led them to a red Ford Fiesta in a car park in Marbella, 15 miles from Gibraltar. This car contained a large quantity of Semtex explosive, surrounded by 200 rounds of ammunition, along with four detonators and two timers. The IRA issued a statement late on the 7th of March to the effect that McCann, Savage and Farrell were, quote, on active service in Gibraltar and had access and control over 140 pounds of Semtex explosives. The explosives the IRA intended to use in Gibraltar were believed to have come from the ex-Libyan ruler, Gaddafi, who was known to be supplying arms to the IRA in the 1980s. Some sources speculated that Gibraltar was chosen for its relative proximity to Libya, and the targeting of the territory was intended as a gesture of gratitude to Gaddafi. So in essence, although the British authorities were right about the plot, they had the wrong day. Even now, opinion on the Gibraltar killings is running high. Many feel that as the IRA members were there to kill, the circumstances don't really matter of their deaths. Others are deeply troubled by the actions of the SAS, authorised by the British government, and also the actions of the British government following the murders. The debate will rage on, but whatever your thoughts, three people with families and friends were still murdered in cold blood on the streets of Gibraltar. The New York Times Examining the circumstances of Farrell's death stated, Marriott Farrell might be dismissed as some wild-eyed fanatic, except that part of her life has been preserved in several home movies and a television interview taped shortly before her death. 
What emerges is a portrait of a soft-spoken, attractive woman, determined to end what she perceived as the injustices surrounding her everyday life. This leaves us pondering the obvious conclusion. To the people of Falls Road in Belfast, she was a patriot. To the British, she was a terrorist. And to her family, she was a victim of Irish history. The IRA notified the McCann, Savage and Farrell families of the deaths on the evening of the 6th of March. In Belfast, Joe Austin, a senior local member of Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, was assigned the task of recovering the bodies for burial. On the 9th of March, he and Terence Farrell, one of Marietta's brothers, travelled to Gibraltar to identify the bodies. All scheduled flights from Gibraltar went to London, and airport staff at Gatwick indicated they might refuse to unload the coffins. To avoid further distress and delay, a plane was chartered to carry the remains directly to Ireland. At Dublin Airport, persistent rain could not deter thousands of mourners who waited patiently to pay their last respects. It was a scene often repeated as a cortege travelled through towns and villages before arriving at Dundalk, a town on the border between southern and northern Ireland. It was 10pm. At the border control zone, scores of IUC personnel, clad in full riot gear and brandishing batons and plastic bullet guns, barred the way. They insisted on intervals between the hearses, causing tension between the police and the members of the procession, and even leading to accusations that the police had rammed Savage's hearse. As the coffins were driven north to Belfast, Northern Ireland authorities packed the neighbourhoods where McCann, Farrell and Savage had lived, with soldiers and police, to try to prevent public displays of sympathy for the dead. At 7.42pm that evening, a local IRA member, Kevin McGracken, was preparing to attack a patrol moving through the area close to the house of Sean Savage. According to the IRA, the 31-year-old was killed by a British Army sniper as authorities flooded the area in an attempt to intimidate the family of Sean Savage. His inquest found that he was armed, he did have a gun, but the cartridge was unloaded at the time of the shooting. Apparently he had tried to run away when he was shot in the back. It was further alleged that no ambulance was called for 15 minutes and that he was beaten as he lay dying by members of the security services. As I said at the very start of this episode, the facts of the events in 1988 are really difficult to establish and this death illustrates the heightened tensions of this time. I mean, can you imagine it, the scene? The eldest of five children, with an easygoing nature and a love of football, Kevin McGracken was buried at Milltown Cemetery on St Patrick's Day in 1988. At his inquest, his father refused to take to the witness stand due to the absence of the soldier who killed his son. The inquest jury commented that it was unfortunate that the soldier involved refused to attend. Nobody was ever convicted of his murder. The animosity between the mourners and the police continued until the procession split to allow the hearses to travel to their respective family homes and then on to Milltown Cemetery for burial. The Irish police, the IUC, agreed to maintain a minimal presence at the funeral in exchange for guarantees from the families that there would be no salutes by masked gunmen which were standard at IRA funerals. The funeral service and requiem mass went ahead as planned and the cortege made its way to Milltown Cemetery off the Falls Road in Belfast. Present were thousands of mourners and top members of the IRA in Sinn Féin, including Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness. Two police helicopters hovered overhead. 
On the 16th of March 1988, as the coffins of Danny McGann, Sean Savage and Marriott Farrell were being lowered into the ground, a burst of gunfire was heard. Many there assumed that this was the usual firing party and some people even applauded. However, this was no salute. A man named Michael Stone had infiltrated the crowd in an attempt to kill the IRA Sinn Féin leadership with several grenades, two handguns, a semi-automatic pistol and a revolver. As the third coffin was about to be loaded into the ground, Stone threw two grenades, which had a seven-second delay, towards the mourners and began shooting. The first grenade exploded near the crowd and about 18 metres from the grave. Amid the rising panic and confusion, people took cover behind gravestones. Stone began to make his escape, running towards the motorway several hundred yards away, chased by dozens of men and youths. He continued shooting and throwing grenades at his pursuers, and three of the mourners who were at the cemetery to pay their final respects to the dead ended up being killed themselves while pursuing Stone. Two Catholic civilians, Thomas McCurlin, aged 20, and John Murray, aged 26, and a provisional IRA volunteer, Kevin Brady, 30. During the attack, about 60 people were wounded by bullets, grenade shrapnel, and fragments of marble and stone from gravestones. Stone ran out onto the road, and he tried to stop cars, but he was caught by the crowd and beaten unconscious. Police officers quickly arrived, almost certainly saving his life, and they arrested him and rushed him to hospital. This whole event had been recorded by television news cameras and the terrifying pictures were beamed all over the world. Is there a worse crime than attempted to murder grieving friends and family as the coffins of their loved ones are lowered into the ground? I don't think there is. The IRA, Sinn Féin and others claim there must have been collusion with the security forces because only a small number of people had known in advance of the reduced police presence at the funerals. Stone later claimed he'd assurances that British soldiers and RUC officers would not be deployed in the graveyard. He also claimed to have had detailed information about their movements. He further wrote that the night before the attack, he was given his pick of weapons at a secret location outside Belfast and was driven back into the city by a member of the RUC police force. These claims, as you would expect, are vehemently denied by the British authorities. The Ulster Defence Association, or UDA, was another paramilitary organisation in Ireland. We spoke about them briefly earlier. Its declared goal was to defend Ulster Protestant loyalist areas and to combat the IRA. Straight after the murders by Michael Stone, two senior UDA people from Belfast, fearing IRA reprisals against themselves or the areas they control, telephoned the IRA, denying knowledge of Stone or his intentions. They both claimed that Stone was a, a rogue loyalist acting on his own account without any authorisation or sanction from the UDA. It seems that Michael Stone's motivation for the attack was to kill the Sinn Féin IRA leadership at the graveside. He later told journalist Peter Taylor that his attack was retaliation for the IRA's Remembrance Day bombing at Enniskillen four months earlier. Taylor wrote, Stone said it was symbolic. The IRA had attacked a British cenotaph and he was taking revenge by attacking the IRA equivalent. Stone further claimed that a senior member of the UDA had given him the organisation's official clearance for the attack. At his trial, 
Stone objected to newspapers' portrayal of him as some mad Rambo-style gunman. At his trial, he refused to offer any defence for his actions. He ended up being convicted of six murders, the three at the cemetery and three other Catholics in Belfast between 1984 and 1987. He claimed that the other three victims were linked to the IRA, but it appears they were unconnected civilians. They were a bread delivery man, a joiner and a milkman. Michael Stone was sentenced to life imprisonment, with sentences totalling 684 years, with a recommendation he serve at least 30 years. Let's pause the events of 1988 briefly and follow the progress of Michael Stone after he was sent to prison. Overnight, this bearded, chunky-framed, long-haired loyalist became a cult hero to younger loyalists. There was sick graffiti praising his exploits in Protestant working-class areas, and those who followed him down that violent path, such as Johnny Adair, later told people that Stone's lone assault on the IRA funerals in a spot so sacred to Belfast Republicans inspired them to join the UDA. The jacket he wore on the day of the Milltown Massacre was auctioned off for thousands of pounds during a fundraising party in Scotland for Loyalist prisoners. The Ballad of Michael Stone was written and sold via the UDA's magazine, Ulster. And after he was in the Mays prison, Stone received mailbags stuffed with letters from Loyalists, not only in Northern Ireland but further afield, including a whole legion of young women offering to become his girlfriend. While in prison, Stone became one of the five leaders of the UDA. Alongside the other four, he met British Cabinet Minister Mo Molum during the 1998 negotiations between the government and paramilitaries as part of the Northern Ireland peace process. He also collaborated with Martin Dillon on a book about his life called Stone Cold. On the 24th of July 2000, Michael Stone was released from prison after 13 years under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, which was a key agreement of all political parties by Tony Blair's government in the aim to secure lasting peace in Northern Ireland. On his release, Stone lived in East Belfast, London and Spain with his girlfriend Suzanne Cooper. In 2001, Stone and Cooper exchanged bulletproof jackets as Christmas gifts. In November 2006, Stone claimed that in the 1980s he'd been just three days away from killing the then leader of the Greater London Council and the former Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, as he'd invited Sinn Féin's Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness to visit him in London. The plot was reportedly cancelled over fears it had been infiltrated by special branch detectives. On the 24th of November 2006, at 11.16am, Stone was arrested for attempting to enter the Northern Ireland Parliament buildings at Stormont, armed with an imitator, a knife and a bomb, after placing eight pipe bombs within the grounds of Stormont. Three civilian security guards disarmed him as he entered the building, by trapping him within the revolving doors. Before entering the building, he'd scrawled an incomplete graffiti stating Sinn Féin IRA murderers on the Parliament building. Later examination from the bomb squad revealed that the bag Stone had been carrying contained between six and eight viable explosive devices. His trial was held in September 2008, when he faced 13 charges, including the attempted murder of IRA Sinn Féin leaders Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness. Stone had dabbled in art and had recently sold a number of pieces, and this love of art was the basis of his defence 
when his lawyer claimed that the Stormont incident was not intended to endanger the life of anyone, it was, in fact, a piece of performance art replicating a terrorist attack. Bizarre defence. On the 14th of November 2008, Stone was found guilty of attempting to murder Adams and McGuinness. The judge said that defence evidence that Stone had been taking part in some sort of comic parody was hopelessly unconvincing and self-contradictory. On the 8th of December 2008, Michael Stone received a 16-year sentence for his actions at Stormont. In 2016, he was back in the headlines. It was reported he got married in the jail's multi-faith religious centre. There were up to six guests, sandwiches and tray bakes to mark Stone tying the knot. This behind-bars nuptials are just the latest in a number of romances that this prisoner has managed to have. Stone has another decade to go before he can settle down with his new bride on the outside. By that time, he'll be in his early 70s. I wonder how he feels about the actions he's taken in his life at Milltown and also in Stormont 2006. The funerals of those killed at Milltown Cemetery were sombre affairs and the streets of Belfast came to a standstill as the shocked public paused to watch. The streets around the cemetery were lined with large numbers of mourners. The funeral of Kevin Brady, the third and last of the attack victims to be buried and a member of the IRA, was scheduled for the 19th of March. As the funeral procession was making its way towards Milltown Cemetery, the scene of his death, a silver Volkswagen Passat car appeared. The car headed straight towards the front of the funeral procession, which was headed by a number of black taxis, driving past the Sinn Féin steward who signalled it to turn. The car then mounted a pavement, scattering mourners, and turned into a small side road. On finding that this road was blocked, it then reversed its speed, ending up within the funeral procession. When the driver attempted to extricate the car, his exit route was blocked by another black taxi. At this point, most of the mourners and the accompanying Republican stewards assumed that the car contained loyalist gunmen intent on staging another Michael Stone-style attack. Dozens of them rushed forward, kicking the car and attempting to open its doors. Inside the car were two seemingly off-duty soldiers, 23-year-old Corporal David Howes and 24-year-old Corporal Derek Wood. The soldiers inside the car were both armed with automatic pistols, and Corporal Wood, fearing how the situation was developing and scared for his life, climbed partway out of the window, firing a shot in the air which briefly scattered the crowd. Once more, these scenes were all captured by television. The pictures show the majority of the crowd surging back. However, some of them moved towards the car, attacking the vehicle with a wheel brace and a stepladder snatched from a photographer. The corporals were eventually pulled from the car and punched and kicked to the ground. It was a terrible scene. Journalist Mary Holland recalled seeing one of the men being dragged past a group of journalists saying, He didn't cry out. He just looked at us with terrified eyes, as though we were all enemies in a foreign country who wouldn't have understood what language he was speaking if he called out for help. The two men were then dragged into the nearby Casement Park sports ground where they were again beaten, stripped to their underpants and socks and searched. According to those present, an ID card which read Hereford, a location in Germany, was mistaken for Hereford, the headquarters of the SAS. It appears that this was important in sealing the fate of the soldiers. With the IRA by now involved, 
the corporals were further beaten and thrown over a high wall to be put into a waiting black taxi. It was driven off at speed, with camera crews capturing its driver, waving his fist in the air. The corporals were driven less than 200 yards to waste ground, where they were shot several times. Corporal Wood was shot six times, twice in the head and four times in the chest. He was also stabbed four times in the back of the neck and had multiple injuries to other parts of his body. A priest, Father Alec Reed, arrived on the scene. He'd been following the perpetrators in an attempt to intervene and save the two corporals. One of the most enduring pictures from Northern Ireland of the time shows him kneeling beside the almost naked bodies of the soldiers, his face distraught as he administered the last rites. The priest attempted to get someone to call for an ambulance, but was dragged away and threatened with shooting if he didn't stand up. He was then pulled away from the men. According to photographer David Cairns, who took this photograph, although photographers were having their films taken by the IRA, he was able to keep his by quickly leaving the area after taking a photograph of the priest kneeling beside the almost naked body. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.